So we are nearing this series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to end um, right at Easter with the resurrection of Jesus, Lord willing. So this week, it's verses 1 to 32. Next week, Palm Sunday, we'll look at the rest of chapter 15, and then Easter Sunday morning, we'll look at chapter 16, 1 to 8, and then we'll complete our study through the Gospel according to Mark. Um, As we near the end here, I think it's important to see important to be reminded that even though Jesus looks like he is at the hands of the Jewish leaders, Pilate, um, the soldiers, and all of this, he is no victim. Jesus is actually not to be pitied here. Um, This is infinite fullness on its way to be poured out for us, and it's all according to plan which is our first point this morning. Okay, so we're just going to dive right in um, and look at this first point. So we're not going to kind of walk through the text verse by verse this morning. It's a big section. Um, We're going to pull out a few different themes and focus in in on them um, as we walk through it. So first off, I want you to see how all of this is according to plan. Okay, so... Look at Mark 15, 3. The chief priest, Jesus, is, has already been kind of tried, quote-unquote. It was kind of a kangaroo court. It was unjust for a lot of different reasons. Um, he was tried in the middle of the night by the Jewish leaders. And, but they can't complete the sentence of executing Jesus because they're under Roman occupation. They need the Romans to do that. So the chief priests accuse him before Pilate of many things. And Pilate asks Jesus... Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? And Jesus is silent. And it amazes Pilate. You would imagine somebody in this situation, like in a sense on death row, they're going to try to defend themselves and explain why they're in the right. But Jesus is silent. Why? Again, is this because he's a helpless victim and he's just kind of like given up? No, this is an echo of Isaiah 53, 7. This is according to plan. In Isaiah 53, 7, the Messiah who is prophesied of, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's why he was silent. Because God's eternal plan is unfolding here. Another example, there's multiple examples of this. Again, go back to Mark 15, verse 24. They crucified Jesus. There's no sensationalizing in Mark's account. Um, He doesn't talk about the blood and the gore and all of this. He just says it matter of fact. In fact, the focus is more on the shame and the humiliation than it is on the violence and the physical suffering, even though that was severe. So they crucified Jesus. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So... Back then, you would get crucified naked because, again, humiliation and shame was preeminent here. And so you would be tacked to a tree on a public thoroughfare. And so the soldiers, you know, get what's left. They get your clothes. They're going to just, you know, roll some dice for it. Well, this isn't just by coincidence. Psalm 22, Messianic Psalm Twenty-two, eighteen. they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. 
This is all according to plan. Again, back to Mark 15. In the inscription of the charge against Jesus read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Which echoes Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. Okay, again, according to plan. Jesus is not a helpless victim. Mark 15, 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, Psalm 22, verse seven, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. It's all according to plan. Jesus is no helpless victim. He is in control. He's repeatedly predicted his suffering and death with his disciples. We've seen it in previous weeks, right? In fact, in John 10, Jesus said to his disciples, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. The cross is plan A. It's not plan B, like God had to scramble This is plan A. All of this shame that Jesus willingly took on, all the humiliation, all the injustice, all the violence, all the suffering, it was all willingly intended and embraced and accepted, even planned by God for us. So, like, connect the dots of that with your life, with our lives. When we suffer, How often do we wonder where God is in our suffering? Or have you ever talked to somebody about Jesus and they're just like, I can't believe in a God who allowed this much suffering in this world. Where's God in the midst of my suffering? Where's God in the midst of this or that or the other thing that's happened? Well, where is God in our suffering? He is Emmanuel, God with us, suffering with us. And it was all according to plan. He willingly took it on. Also, what do we see here? How, is, how does God respond to our sin? He's not Zeus, you know, with a hair trigger temper, like flinging lightning bolts if you step out of line. He's suffering for us in order to save us from our sin, to save us from ourselves, to save us from just punishment and condemnation that we deserve. So where is God in our suffering? Here, look. He's sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's being scourged until the flesh and muscle on his back is hanging in ribbons. He's being mocked and spit upon and scorned. He's being stripped naked and tacked to a cross on a public thoroughfare. Where's God in our suffering? Look where he is. Look what he's done. And we see the heart of God. And we can trust the heart of God. Isaiah 53, again, he was despised and rejected by man, men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced not for his transgressions, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's all according to plan. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So this is all according to plan. We need to see that. All these echoes of Old Testament prophecies, it's all happening. It's all happening just like he said it would. This is plan A. And this is the God of plan A. Aren't you glad for plan A? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is plan A. A couple more texts, just so you see that God is sovereignly at work here. Acts 2, when Peter's preaching after Pentecost, or at Pentecost, you know, after the Spirit falls and empowers the disciples to preach. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Or again in chapter 4 of Acts, Peter had healed the crippled man, right? At the gate called Beautiful. And he and John get arrested and they're interrogated by these Jewish rulers about how they healed this guy and in what power and what name they, they did this. And Peter boldly, clearly preaches the gospel. And then when they get released, they went to their friends. It's early church. They reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our, David, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, this is Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, the Messiah, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever they determine, whatever their hand determined to do? No, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, hey, church, how you doing today? If you know this God of plan A, you and I, whether we feel like it or not, are doing infinitely better than we deserve. And our future is infinitely better and brighter than we can even imagine. We have hope, a living hope. Like even if the world just goes down an economic collapse and nuclear meltdown, we are on the side with the God of plan A. Like part of our goal in gathering week by week singing these songs that remind us of what's true and the hope that we have and the encouragement, the God who is ours by his grace, all of the very great and precious promises that are ours. We gather together to be reminded of what's true so that our hearts can begin to believe it again. It's easy to just kind of like turn into an earthworm and you just kind of like plugging along through every day and you get discouraged and complaining and downcast and we need to be reminded of what's true. God's in charge. 
And guess what? He wins. He already won on the cross. And he's going to be with us even to the end of the age. And then he's going to make all things new. So our God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We need not fear even if the world falls apart. We can be still and know that he is God because he's sovereign and he's working his plan. He did it through Jesus and he's going to do it until we get home. So we are the people of the God who runs everything according to plan. The world is not ultimately spinning out of control. In some senses, you know, like from the worm's eye view perspective, yes, it is spinning out of control because human beings are at the wheel of their little pieces in the thing. But ultimately, it's not spinning out of control because God knows the end from the beginning. He is in charge of it all. And he holds us by that same sovereign hand, like, like infinitely powerful sovereign hand that is going to direct all things to his appointed end. That same hand holds our hand and walks with us into the future that he has prepared. It's all according to plan. Amen? Amen. Okay, second point. Irony. So as Chad read down through Mark 15, 1 to 32, did you notice any irony? There is a lot of irony in this section. It is both grievous and glorious. So in case you need a little refresher from high school, you know, irony is present when there is incongruity between the situation that's taking place and the words that are used. And only the audience typically can see the incongruity. So in a sense, sometimes this is the way it plays out, right? The audience knows something that the characters don't know. So as we read this text, we know some things that some of those actors in the, the drama as it's unfolding don't know. So over and over again in this passage, Let's just kind of, I'm going to run down through some of of the examples of where this plays out. Jesus is mocked as the king of the Jews. But we know he is the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. He's the king of the universe, right? King of kings, Lord of lords. So they don't know that. Those soldiers certainly don't know that. They wouldn't have been spitting in his face and beating him with a reed if they knew that. They think he's weak. They think he's an imposter. They think he's a failed poser messiah. It's also ironic that the supposed law-loving, scrupulous Jewish ruling council breaks the law in order to have Jesus crucified. We saw that last week, right? But you see more of it here. Oh, the ones who thought so highly of Torah, they're breaking it in order to accomplish their purposes. More irony. Pilate is the governor, right? And yet it's the will of the governed that prevails. Crucify him. Why? Crucify him. Okay. The governor is governed. That's ironic. The prisoner, Jesus, seems to be completely at the will and whim of others. But as we've seen, he's in sovereign control, accomplishing the will of his father. Another irony, this silent condemned man, he's saying nothing, and all the while he is fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. 
His silence is loud. Another irony. The prisoner is the only one who's truly free. All the various people in this account are acting out of self-interest. They're slaves of their fears and their desires. We'll look at that more in a few minutes. The only one operating from the freedom of integrity and love is Jesus, and he's the prisoner. The prisoner's the only one who's actually free. I mean, all the mockery is ironic. Look at verse 16. The soldiers led him away inside the palace. They called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They mocked him as a king. Obviously, he is the king of kings. So here, mockery and scorn. Like, they think he is a comic figure. But this is the cosmic king of kings. And actually, it's through humiliation that he will be coronated and exalted. So another thing to just stop and marvel at here. Have you ever just shuddered at this spot in the account where they're spitting on Jesus and beating him? Like, oh my goodness. Like, if they only knew. Like, I think we should actually stop and marvel at the glorious, terrifying, merciful restraint of God. Like, this feels a little bit, you know, trivial in comparison, but maybe this will help us. I mean, can't even, there's probably like dozens and dozens and dozens of movies and TVs along, TV shows along these lines where there's some supernaturally powerful being that's attacked by mere humans. You know, whether it's Superman or Thor or, you know, the Hulk or whatever. And they come at him with all of their firepower. And this being just kind of like takes it for a minute or two. And then finally just like, and just levels all the enemies. Like Jesus could have done that like vaporized everybody. The merciful, the merciful restraint of God is amazing here. More irony. Down in verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him said, the king of the Jews, obviously we know that is actually true, even though they were mocking him with it. With him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left, and those who passed by derided him. That word is actually the word for blasphemy. Wagging their heads and saying, you know, aha, you who would destroy the temple. Isn't it ironic that they are blaspheming him, actually, when they think that he's guilty of blasphemy and that's why he's hanging on the cross? Do you see it? And then the chief priest, verse 31 with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, again, that's mockery, sarcasm, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So the tragic irony is the fact that 
He can't come down from the cross in order to save them. Right? They don't see that. They're blind to it. If he came down from the cross, then they couldn't be saved. So again, tragic irony, the irony of their blindness that leads them to say what they say. And then it's obviously tragic irony that Pilate releases the guilty criminal, Barabbas, and condemns an innocent man, Jesus. So it's tragic in one sense, but in another sense, it's the opposite of tragic, right? Which leads to point number three, we are Barabbas. So this guy, Barabbas, was an insurrectionist, okay? He was a murderer. We see that in the description of him. See in verse 7, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was this man called Barabbas. So what in the world do I mean we are Barabbas? Well, this guy Barabbas is there in Jerusalem. He's basically on death row. He's guilty of murder, guilty of insurrection. He's part of, you know, perhaps a leader in a revolt, a rebellion against Rome. You know, the Jews hated being under the thumb of Rome, and there, there were multiple little kind of zealot um, revolts that took place during these, you know, decades and decades of being under Rome's thumb. So perhaps he was a zealot who wanted God's kingdom to come, and he was willing, he, he wanted to make Jerusalem great again by force and violence. And that revolt was crushed by Roman muscle. And he's a goner. Just a matter of time, Rome crucifies guys like this. They've done it before. They're going to do it again. So he gets called up. You can imagine, like, he's in prison. He gets called up. Perhaps he even heard outside the crowd yelling, crucify him. So he figures his numbers up. He's going to be scourged and let out to be crucified. Rome wanted to make an object lesson of anyone who dared to threaten their power. They would crucify these guys, like I said, tack naked, public thoroughfare, so as many people as possible saw it and learned their lesson. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. And then he's set free. Set free. He just goes free. Another dies instead. Another is crucified instead of him. In fact, Jesus is going to be killed essentially under the same sentence Barabbas tried to overthrow Roman rule. Jesus claims to be a king, which would threaten Roman rule, right? So we are Barabbas. What do I mean? Are, are we murderers and insurrectionists? Most likely not. But in another very real and ultimate sense, yes, we are all Barabbas. So insurrection, you know, you look it up in the dictionary, it's an act of revolting against civil authority or established government, usually an organized attempt by a group of people, and it's aimed at taking over power. So you know that the fall of Adam and Eve was a cosmic insurrection, right? The benevolent king of the universe created them and blessed them and gave them a commission to rule as his vice-regents. In his stead, on his behalf, not to usurp his rule, but to extend it, to represent it. He gave them the law, which was actually just one prohibition. Just don't eat from this tree. 
Otherwise, total freedom. And because of the deceitfulness of the serpent's lies, they bought that bill of goods, they doubted God's goodness, and they decided it was better to determine for themselves what was good for them. And the world was plunged into darkness and chaos. It was a revolt. It was cosmic mutiny. And we have fallen suit ever since. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want our kingdom to come on earth as it is in our own selfish, prideful minds and hearts. And when people cross us, we bring the wrath. And you know what? It starts early. If you've ever hung out with a two-year-old, don't try to play with my toys. It's the law of the jungle out there, right? Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. We just get more sophisticated at it as we get older, but it's still dog eat dog. It's survival of the fittest or the smartest or the prettiest or the most successful or the wealthiest, etc. And it's miserable. But we think that the misery is because we don't get what we want and we keep fighting for our piece of the pie. We are Barabbas, cosmic insurrectionists. And we can't like pass off the murder thing either. We envy and hate those who have more have what we don't have that we wish we had. And we hate that they have it and we don't. Cain and Abel came in quick. We conduct character assassinations in our minds, if not in conversation with others. We gossip and slander, torching people with the hellish fire in our tongues. We hate people that we feel superior to. And we hate people that we feel inferior to. in the kingdoms of this world when we're operating by those governments, governmental systems and values. We tear people down and we tear them up. We murder in our minds. We are Barabbas guilty of murder. I mean, what crazy insanity took hold of those Jews that they would call for Barabbas to be freed and Jesus to be crucified? But wait, this is according to plan. Remember? Point number one. Because Jesus came to take the place of guilty cosmic criminals like you and me. We are Barabbas. But look, Barabbas went free and Jesus got hung in his place. It's the gospel. This is an early echo of the whole point. It's the very basis for the good news of the gospel. This is the first substitution of the innocent for the guilty that became the great exchange of the gospel, right? We have nothing but sin and guilt to bring to the table. God doesn't need anything that he didn't already give us. All we come with is debt. And Jesus has got no debt. He's got a wealth of riches of mercy and grace. And he dies in our place on the cross for our sins. And he gives us his righteousness and mercy and forgiveness and all of that. That's the great exchange. It's substitution. You recognize that you can't atone for your own sins. You can't save yourself. 
you turn from all your attempts to do so, you know, self-justification projects, trying to atone for your own sins, and you cling to Jesus, the Savior. Repent and believe. And this is the first, like, is like the prelude to the song of the gospel that just starts to swell as we get to the end of the gospel here of Mark. William Lane says it this way. He summarizes it well. Because again, think about what it means to be hung on a tree in Jewish criminal law. If you're not familiar with this, the hanging on a gibbet, which is like a gallows, you know, wooden thing that people would be hung on, prescribed by law for idolaters and blasphemers who had been stoned, notice, was not a form of capital punishment, but of humiliation since it followed death. They would stone the person and then they would hang them, impale them or hang them on this, you know, gallows type thing as an object lesson. So again, the point is humiliation. The public exposure of an executed person branded him as one cursed by God in accordance with the provision of Deuteronomy 21, 23, for he, he is a curse of God who hangs on a tree. These words were applied equally to one who was crucified. When the chief priests in the crowd demanded death by crucifixion for Jesus, they expressed the conviction that he must take his last breath on the cross as one accursed by God, accursed of God. So Deuteronomy 21, which seems crazy. How could the Messiah be cursed? He would be the blessed one, right? But look at Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If we try to justify ourselves, we're going to fail in that project and be cursed. For it is written, cursed be any, everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the great exchange. So he was cursed. This is all according to plan. He intended to just welcome all of this humiliation and shame and suffering and death, taking the wrath of God that we deserve in our place on the cross. He gets cursed so that you and I can be blessed. He is forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. Again, the great exchange. Listen to these verses that, that speak to it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. So that in him, if you hide in him, take refuge in him as your Savior, we might become the righteousness of God. Or 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. So crazy thing here. Um, do you know what the name Barabbas means? Bar, Abbas. Son of Abba. Son of the Father. 
And from Matthew 27, his full name was Jesus Barabbas. He was Jesus, son of the father. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? The innocent one was taken and crucified. The innocent Jesus, son of the father, was taken and crucified. He fell under the curse so that the guilty one would be set free from the curse. The true son of the father, Jesus means Yahweh saves. He died in our place so that we could become sons of the father. Sons and daughters adopted into his family, beloved and become Jesus people, right? People whose lives proclaim that Yahweh saves. We were Barabbas. I just changed it. We are, we were, right? If you're in Christ, you're no longer Barabbas. We are not Barabbas, point number four. So we are Barabbas until we come to Christ and then we're not Barabbas What do I mean? Am I speaking out of both sides of my mouth? No. What had Barabbas done? He hated Roman rule and oppression. Okay, that's understandable. He sought to take matters into his own hands, violently so, in order to bring the kingdom. But that's not God's way. That's not his means. So the main kind of center of gravity in this passage is the substitutionary work of Jesus in our place on the cross, right? But there's a secondary focus where Jesus is actually our example as well. And we are supposed to see the way that Jesus walks through this and the way that these others walk through this. And there's this stark difference that we are intended to see. Barabbas took matters into his own hands, violently so, in order to bring the kingdom. He was most likely a zealot. Jesus, as the king of kings, bringing his new covenant kingdom that will have no end, his ways and means are completely opposite of Barabbas and his zealot friends. He's laying down his life, not rising up to take life and take power. He, his power comes through the weakness, the so-called weakness of the cross. So we, the people of God, are not Barabbas. We are not to take matters into our own hands and try to bring the kingdom by force. We are also not the Jewish leaders. Do you see their wicked pragmatism? So again, last week we, we saw that they were willing to break the law in the interest of their supposed commitment to the law. I mean, obviously they're dead wrong, but also the ends don't justify the means, right? So they asked for a convicted murderer in place of Jesus. When Pilate asked why they want Jesus crucified in verse 14, he says, why, what evil has he done? They don't answer. They just shout louder, crucify him. Do you see? They don't care about truth. They don't care about justice. They just want their will to be done. And so they shout louder. That's sacrificing what's right on the altar of what works according to my will. That's pragmatism. We are not Barnabas. Well, it'd be good to be Barnabas. We're not Barabbas. We are not the Jewish leaders. We are also not Pilate. 
So Pilate was smart enough to see through kind of the accusation charade here. He knew the Jewish leaders were envious. See that in verse 10. He knew Jesus wasn't some revolutionary threat, at least not like Barabbas, you know, or other would-be political messiahs. He knew he wasn't guilty of anything deserving capital punishment, but guess what? It didn't matter. He ignores innocence in the interest of expediency. So there's actually some interesting background to what preceded this interaction between Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the crowd. Pilate actually, you know, according to history, which some reliable accounts, he despised the Jews. He had already done several things to deeply offend them. He had, in one case, taken a significant sum of money from the temple treasury to finish like 23 miles, I think, of an aqueduct project. Like he just took their temple funds and used it for public works. And there was this massive protest and he sent out his heavies to deal with it and they beat the people into submission and killed a large number of Jews in the process. That had already happened. Another time he filled the area with idolatrous imagers of the emperor because they deified the emperor, right? And they claimed that he was the son of God. And the outcry was so great because, you know, don't have any images It was so offensive to the Jews. The outcry was so great, there was this large contingent of Jews that traveled 70 miles to Caesarea to stage a massive protest outside of Pilate's house for five days. And that caught the attention of Caesar. And he's like, what is going on over there? Can't you keep these people under control? So he actually removed the images because he didn't want to lose his job which oftentimes meant you lost your head. So he hated the Jews, but he had also learned to be careful not to offend them too much. If it could bring imperial heat and scrutiny down on him, he didn't want to lose his job, lose power. So he didn't operate according to justice, but expedience. So he sees that complying with the will of the Jews could have some political value no value to the life of Jesus. He's just considering his own power. Bottom line, Pilate, the Jewish leaders, they don't care if Jesus is innocent. It's religious power and political power and calculations that matter over truth and integrity. That sounds kind of contemporary, doesn't it? So both the Sanhedrin and Pilate are slaves of their own desires of expediency. Jesus is the only true free person in the narrative, ironically. But again, we, if Jesus is our Savior and we are a part of his kingdom, we dare not operate by the systems and values and kingdoms of this world. I mean, do we ever shrink back from the truth? standing for the truth out of pragmatic concerns of self-preservation and self-promotion? Do we ever sacrifice our integrity? Sacrifice the truth on the altar of expediency? In our workplace? In any context, you can... Tease it out in your own life. This is not the way in this kingdom, with this king, under this king. We are not Barabbas or Pilate or the Jewish leaders, right? 
And we should say amen, just like we said amen to the fact that we are Barabbas and yet Jesus has saved us. We are to be a new people willing to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Jesus establishes his kingdom in a completely counterintuitive way. Strength through weakness. Give your life like you save life, you give life by giving your life. Dying that others might live. We lay down the self-interest and the self-promotion. And it's the good of the other that drives us. So the taunt for Jesus to come down from the cross, you know, is the opposite, right? Well, save yourself and then we'll believe you. No, 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 no. In this kingdom, to establish this kingdom, the only way I can save others is by not saving myself. See, that was actually the temptation in the wilderness to skirt around the suffering. Remember Satan's temptation? Skirt around the suffering to get to rule. And the the disciples needed to be reshaped according to the values of this kingdom. You know, we want to be on your right, on your left. We want the places of power. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, the Gentiles, they lord it over but not so among you. If you want to be first, you must be servant of all. For not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this passage, yes, primarily about substitution, which is glorious and wonderful. We need to keep that center of gravity right where it belongs, the center of our lives, but it also echoes and becomes a pattern for the disciples of Jesus. Do you remember back to chapter 13? Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they're going to face if they follow him. He says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, regardless of the cost. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So again, you don't take up the sword, you don't have to like figure out how to, you know, be tactful enough to avoid any sort of persecution. Trust me, speak the truth. The most important thing is not survival and saving your skin. Most important thing is following Jesus and enduring to the end. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So, There's like lots of different ways we could potentially apply this, right? Let me just give you one. This might initially sound a little silly, but a lot of where this gets fleshed out is not, you know, before some tribunal where we're going to get hung on a cross. It's where our image and our reputation is going to be crucified. Okay? Or... Well, here, let me just give you this example. So there's this book called How the Nations Rage by Jonathan Lehman. Really good. Haven't finished it yet, but man, it is thought-provoking. So he's just talking about the difference between the kingdoms of this world, like um, underneath the governments of this world are self-justifying, self-exalting values, which is the opposite of the kingdom of heaven, right? So he he writes of his friend, Kyle. Uh, One of my friends and fellow church members, Kyle, 
encountered the self-promoting nature of politics while sitting in front of an eight-person animal control commission for our Maryland County. I told you it's going to sound a little trivial here. Um, Kyle's next-door neighbor claimed that his dog, Bo, barked too much during the daytime. I'm just trying to make this really practical, but this is just one example, and then we need to flesh it out in a lot of more directions, even if you don't, especially if you don't have a dog. All right, um, so Kyle's next-door neighbor claimed that his dog, Bo, barked too much during the daytime. The neighbor was a stay-at-home lawyer who resolved her life problems through litigation. She had sued both our town and county multiple times. Kyle, whose wife and children were home all day, denied the barking. But there he was in dog court, his term. Apparently, the chairman of the commission had let the power of dog court get to his head. He began emotionally in a high pitch. People think they can ignore us and get away with it. They can't. So, you know, maybe Rome and Pilate is like a bigger scale government. This is like, you know, peanuts down the street, but... There's government everywhere, right? The kingdoms of this world operating everywhere. A four-minute harangue followed. Kyle, who formerly worked in government intelligence and at the time advised the U.S. senator, replied that he would not be interrogated. Uh, The now red-faced chairman replied that that's exactly what he would do. A policeman on the commission, rolling his eyes, pulled the chairman into the hallway and explained, apparently, that no, they were not allowed to interrogate people in dog court. The chairman returned to his chair and calmly asked for Kyle's side of the story. Ah, politics in a fallen world. Why in the world do I read that? Let's say that happened to you. What do you do? Figure out whatever you need to get out of this thing and then go home and gripe about your neighbor and tell the the neighbors, like, can you believe what... Gossip and slander, you know, character assassination, even if it's true, you know. Cease to have anything to do with this neighbor anymore. You know, you don't want to poke the bear. Or, here's what he says later on in the book. Remember my fellow church member Kyle who went to dog court? (laughs) He stood up for himself in court, okay, as he should have. He told the truth, right? He defended himself according to the principles of fairness through the institution of government as God provided it for the sake of the fall. But after the fact, Kyle and his wife invited their litigious neighbor to dinner. They looked after her daughter. They worked even harder at keeping their dog quiet. And little by little, they won the woman's friendship. None of this would have happened if my friend had been a proud man, unaware of his own sin. He worked within the confines of the politics of the fall or dog court, but then went beyond that and exercised the politics of the gospel by offering peace and mercy. He wasn't focused on his rights or retaliation, but mercy. So do you see what I'm saying? You see what's going on here? The center of gravity is the substitution of Jesus, and that's got to be the center of gravity of our lives. We were Barabbas, and hallelujah, we are now sons of the Father, daughters of the Father. But we've been brought into an entirely different kingdom. And so we no longer, brothers and sisters, can operate according to the rules and values and priorities of the kingdoms of this world. We need to follow Jesus loving enemies, blessing those who persecute us, 
bless and do not curse, overcome evil with good, etc., etc., etc. And we need lots of grace for that. So let's pray and then we're going to sing to close. So Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, help us, Lord, to be fully assimilated, fully shaped by the values of our King who suffered and died in our place that we could go from Barabbas to beloved sons and daughters. And I pray that we would represent and reflect him well in the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.